0: Maybe they're like, I don't trust these guys in my bench at all. I'm going to put them as in as little as I can. <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to the Touchline Theory Soccer Podcast. I'm Martin, your host, and today, unfortunately, Will is out, but I am lucky to be joined by a special guest. Uh, My friend who is here on the podcast with us today is the source of some of the most enriching uh, tactical and philosophical conversations I've had in recent memory. So I would like you all to give a warm welcome to Austin Reynolds. Austin, how are you doing, man?
0: I'm doing well. How are you tonight? I'm doing
1: all right. Uh, I'm excited for this. I think we've been talking about all sorts of things recently, and and uh, today's episode, today's topic, is something that I think a lot of people are generally pondering um, quite a bit recently, with some rule changes and things that have been uh, coming to light in in the soccer world. And so, this idea of subs seems to be changing. So, I'm I'm ready to get into it with you.
0: Yeah, I mean substitutions, they take place at pretty much every game across the world. And it despite that, it doesn't seem like they're given the detail and attention that they deserve. So I'm excited to dive into it. Sweet. So
1: I think the plan then I'm, I'm going to kind of start things off with a bit of an introduction. Um, Our listeners are tightly knit, uh small pod of listeners. There's a range of soccer expertise. So we'll kind of lay the foundation for generally what subs are, I think, for the most part, people that are listening to this have a general understanding, um, but we're going to kind of provide a bit of a motivation as to why this is even a topic in the first place, and then we'll we'll, we'll jump right in. So, to get our, our foundation set up, um, soccer at the highest level starts with a certain number of players and eventually you get to add more in, though this is limited, right? That's generally how this sport is played. That's how most sports are played. You have a group that's on the field and the group that's off of it. And typically this process is overlooked as a bit of a foregone conclusion. Um, Basically the idea is that like you replenish tiredness with energy or you make a minor tactical switch, but ultimately there's some neglect, generally speaking, right? Because you have players that are on the field. And if you have players that are on the field, why would you worry about players that are off of it? It makes sense that you would devote most of your attention to the ones that are actively involved in, in making things happen on the field. So you know, part of that trivialization comes from the fact that substitutions at a youth level, there's, there's not really much consequence that comes with those decisions because you can reverse them, you can make as many as you want, and that unlimited nature kind of leads to a bit of dismissiveness in terms of how strategic a coach necessarily has to be um, when they're doing that. And there also exists this notion that complicates things of a starting 11, which is this idea that you've got... Players that start the match and tends to be an indication of perhaps who the eleven best players are at that time, and that creates a bit of a stigma to the notion of being a sub, which makes things a little bit more complicated. So, recently, the general idea is that people have begun to explore some of the inefficiencies that lie within this kind of replacement process, Um, and in a sport that's always looking for tiny little competitive advantages, you know, this is emerged as like an untapped area to a certain degree, or at least one that's becoming increasingly tapped into. Um, and so today, the plan then is to dive into a couple of ways in which the traditional interpretation of substitutions might be limiting its potential. Um, and then in the second half, we'll probably investigate some alternative ideas, including the idea of five subs, which is the emergent topic uh, du jour. So... Let's start off um, with the notion of fatigue, Austin, I want to talk about fatigue, because I think this is the type of thing that drives a lot of substitutions. And, you know, one of the most intuitive ways to look at substitutions is that when someone gets tired, they get worse, it's plain and simple, right. And you might have better players that can come on as replacements, but it's a bit more in depth than that, right. So I know that you have been exposed to some resources regarding how this kind of tiredness actually impacts performance. So, how would you frame all of this?
0: Yeah, I would there's a lot that you can start with, but I essentially would the starting point that I would use when describing why fatigue matters is um the importance of changes of pace in the game and where that comes from from your body's like energy resources. So basically the human body um, has a spectacular capacity for, for aerobic conditioning. Of course, there are super examples and people that can't do um, that can't, that can't run a mile, but a fit individual can maintain a pace for a pretty long amount of time, which shows like a good example is that just like the level of marathon participation, like, that's a really difficult thing that a lot of people in the grand scheme of things are able to do. Um, and so mm. soccer is a little bit different in the sense that the moments that decide a match involve these high changes of pace that use a different energy system than a marathon. Um, they use the anaerobic system they use. Um, they, they solve more glycogen from the muscles. If I have this, if I have that scientifically correct. Um, <laughs> but more or less, the the sprinting that takes place in the moments that end up deciding a soccer game, by and large, um, they slowly extract energy from from a player, and because of that, um, an analogy I like to use is like a imagine like a player has ten sprints per game, and a sprint we can essentially define as being faster than roughly 20, roughly 20 or 25 like kilometers per hour. Like if they move faster than that, then they are really hitting like a maximal like anaerobic capacity usage. And that is really intensive on the body, especially over time. And so like if one sprint, if it's a whole bottle of water, one sprint will use a little bit, two or three sprints uses a little bit more and eventually the more sprinting you do, you're gonna, your bottle of water is going to run out and you're not going to be able to impact the game through your changes of pace that you were able to in the beginning of the game. And so when you um, think about your substitutions, your idea is that for as many players as possible, the bottle of water is as close to full as it can be so that you can continue to maintain your t- intensity from minute one to minute 90. Um because if you're able to continue to maintain your intensity, provided that it's a high intensity, you can play a low intensity for out all 90 minutes and, and play poorly. But um, at hmm. the highest levels, like your, um, the direction that the game is going, uh, you need to be able to physically and technically move the ball, move at a high speed. So...
1: One of the things that we're kind of assuming with all of that is the idea that the game is won in those high intensity moments, right? Like that when you have these peaks of activity, if the other team isn't able to keep up with that spike, then that's when you earn a certain advantage and that's when you can trounce over the opponent. What's the logic behind why the intense moments are the ones in which the match is won, as opposed to kind of maintaining a certain baseline of... uh Kind of energy expenditure or intensity. Why do the lulls not matter as much
0: in your eyes? They do. I, I would say that if anything, they help prepare the um, the big mo- ch- pace change of pace moments too. And hmm. ideally, you win the game with expending as little energy as possible. But I think in a high, in a high setting, like in a high level setting, you. Um, have to because that's the margin that you're that you're going in. If you, if, like, that's a, for example, like if you can just win the game on set pieces, like which don't expend much energy at all, um, then you can do that. But that's typically not how games are decided, and very little of the game, in terms of a time period, is spent in set pieces. So unfortunately, like you're going to have to run and like put pressure on the ball or counter attack or keep the ball. And so what you experience is if You have possession with no pace change. You have a team that sits back and they get accused of having no plan B. Um, If you have slow counterattacks, the opponent will drop back. Um, If you don't have pace changes in front of goal, then they're just going to be able to keep in front of you and block the shots. Essentially, these pace changes in some way, shape, or form are a mixture of like a tactical mechanism to create space, but it's the physical manifestation of how um, a team actually Moves and creates stuff on the pitch. It's not like, oh, it's not like all the situations I'm talking about are Killian Mbappe being thread through a through ball and he's outrunning every single person on the pitch. Like that's sure. That's extremely rare. It's more so that, um, like there are like really energy expenditure moments that that come that are similar to that, but, um, that's not always the case. And essentially, um, the, the smaller the game gets in terms of the types of spaces you have to play in, it opens up a lot of the pitch and teams are having to use those areas more and more to break pressure. It's just a natural hmm. consequence of the of the direction of the game.
1: So the, the logic then from that, given that the game is won in certain key moments in which energy expenditure is a function of performance in some sense, the idea is basically that you know it's the intuitive notion that like when somebody gets tired they they play worse right that's like a simple thing for people to grasp but like there's there's definitely a little bit more behind that right there's this idea of of how you know freshness can change the pace in a sense when you bring on a certain player, you are adding an injection of that full water bottle that allows you to maybe suddenly in a point at which you were lulling or you had players around the field that had part of the water bottle able to to dispense, um, now suddenly you have this peak that you've been able to insert into your side, right? You you talked to me a little bit about um, some consultants that you've been in contact with that have talked a little bit about uh, how these things work in the context of of, of health conditions and, and heat stroke and stuff like that. What, what's that all about?
0: Um, so if I remember this person's points correctly, he essentially, he, he he's like a heat management expert in terms of more heat stroke. Like, I don't think he's one to be able to describe like the impact that strategically that this person can perform at. But his whole thesis was that, um, let's say after sixty-five minutes of play, you have like a high-level player, and for the sake of like math, like this player, if he performs at his top level, it's like eighty percent. And so let's let's say after sixty-five minutes of play, he plays at seventy-five percent of his capability. So now he's only able to perform at sixty percent. Yeah. And then you have a player that's able to perform at one hundred percent of his capability that would contribute let's say 65% like if you imagine like a fifa overall like it would kind of make sense. Um, yeah. He would essentially argue that the player that's 100% fresh and 65% able to impact the game would ma- would be able to impact the game more than that player that's 80% at his 100% but fatigued by 75% so he's only performing at 60%. And that's just like it's this it's essentially this idea that and this is something that, like, intuitively there's there's arguments either way because someone might say, well, if someone's a world-class player, like, you never know when they're going to perform something. And I think Germany in 2014 was a really good example of this with how long they kept Mesut Ozil on the pitch. Um, hmm. And he was able to find moments to impact games. Um, and there's kind of arguments both ways. Um, I think as squads become more... Uh, equitable in terms of how they're spread particularly among like top top teams um there's really not that much of a marginal difference between the player that starts and the player that comes in so you're better off in my view going off with the guy that can inject pace particularly against fatigued opponents which we'll probably dive into much more too
2: hmm
1: I guess the the question that comes to mind with the Ozil thing too is just like there's there's some athletes that just know how to pace themselves so well. And when attention is brought to this type of question as to like how do you maximize your impact on a match? Do you go all out in the first 45 minutes? Do you pace yourself? Do you do you reserve energy? There is a bit of you know, uh, regret that might come into play when you have a player of a certain amount of quality on the field that might have more to give that if you pull them off, perhaps they were simply holding back in order to be able to exert their will in a t- more tender moment in the match later on. Right. There's kind of, you know, some cognitive fallacies that can come into play in terms of if you are a coach at the helm and you have set out your starting 11, which is an indication of, you know, uh, optically, who you believe are the right eleven players to to charge into this match and make the difference. Um, you know, when you're Im- immersed in that, you you hope that that initial thing was right. And then, whenever you have to make these substitutions, it almost appears as though you are admitting your mistakes when you bring on a certain player, and not necessarily always, but there is a circumstance in yeah. which that might happen. And so some coaches I would imagine might feel a little bit reluctant to kind of pull off an initial conviction. And there's this added layer of like, what if, you know, Messi has been walking around for the entire game, but he knows that he can sprint in the 90th minute and catch bill bow off, you know? Yes. Is there some sort of like psychological underpinning for that type of thinking? Or how would you, I don't know, uh, put that into, into
0: context. There's two ways I could look at this. Number one is like, if a player is going to be more effective in the second half, just bring him in the second half. But then Mm -hmm. there's also the discussions of like, well, he has to see what all the players do and experience it. And he'll adapt to the circumstances of the game.
1: In that circumstance, could you feasibly have them observe those things from the sideline? Or is there a little bit more of an advantage by having them on the field for vantage point or even testing ideas of their own?
0: Uh, Like for, I think for these types of players, like these, Let's say let's call them uh, low work rate, potentially high attacking output players. Okay. Uh, because those are the, these are the players we're discussing at this moment. There's like sure. experiential, like oh, this is what this guy does. This guy steps at this moment, and they kind of hmm. do these like mental calculations throughout the game, and they say, okay, at this moment, like I'm going to look to do this, and that becomes with like a lot of trial and error, and there's a reason that like these risk takers will have like lower success rates in the attacking third but like when they succeed oh my god it is really cool or it's sure very very impactful so that's like a that's like an art and i don't know if that's gonna kind of come to the wayside as like more formalized substitution tactics come into play um but i think like that there's an experiential part of it for sure and then sometimes like like a, a an example of a player that i think did this like type of thing exceptionally well was Romelu Lukaku when he was on loan at West Brom, like in the mm-hmm. very beginning of his career where he accepted his role. There there were two forwards, Shane Long, and the other one is escaping me that just ran their socks off for the first 65 minutes or so. And then he would come in the last 25 and the defenders would be so tired by then. And like Lukaku, like fully fit and strong, Strong as can be and running down, running down center backs and offering a threat in behind like that. That's so difficult. And like he, he understood that role exceptionally well. And so I think it depends on the type of player that they are. Um, if it's a someone that's more of a, let's say, like a space artist to borrow the term of of, of a friend of mine, Giannis uh, um, they might have to experience the space. If it's someone that's like and to understand the entropy that is increasing in the game if it's someone that it just is a little bit more of like a battering ram and causes that disorder in the opponent regardless it will be enhanced just by when they enter the game if they're Hmm. it's a like i haven't actually discussed this with you but basically like the 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 idea with substitutions is to basically minimize the amount of entropy within your team to uh, to expose the entropy in the opponent um and that is like a pretty that's like the heart of that's like the heart of it and i think very few um like there's very little discussion about how to actually maximize like how to expose specific things and i think the types of disorder that take place within an the opponent they it's very specific to how that team plays and for certain players to discover that some mm-hmm. of them can just do it from the sidelines where they just point out but like yeah that left center back's really tired, like, I don't think they're going to sub him out, like, I'm going to run in from him, and then another player (laughs) might have to feel like, you know what, I'm getting three more meters of space in this gap, and I'll be able to turn, and, and I wasn't able to do that in the first half.
1: Right, and there's also the segmentation of the larger abstract fabric of the game into micro duels in which you have players that notice these little, you know, minute details about those that are most closely around them. And you could imagine how, let's say, a player watching Kante would have less of an idea as to how Kante would annoy them compared to somebody who's in there physically being annoyed and it is understanding physically and with all the different stimuli, all the different senses, how that player is, is, is being an aggravating presence. And so I think, like... You know, we've talked on this podcast actually before about the death of the number 10. You mentioned Ozil earlier. I think this idea of like, you know, l- low energy expenditure, high potential attacking output and whether this type of thing might die. out. I think that there has been a bit of a death of the number 10 and you've seen fewer James Rodriguez type players um, succeed at the highest level right now because of the general demands of energy expenditure and consistency in how you do that. Um across the board but one thing that I wanted to ask you too kind of off this is like when we talk about energy expenditure what is the way that say I don't know if it's whether in whether it's in your performance environment or just generally how do teams measure how players are expending energy. Because one thing that is a commonly referenced stat that I think is very rudimentary surface level is distance traveled. But distance traveled tells you basically nothing about the changes of direction, the accelerations, the, you know, how how is that captured? And is that information that you have fed to you real time where you could see, for instance, on an iPad on the sideline, like, hey, this guy's hitting a certain maximum threshold given his current state? Or how do you observe that are there data angles and so forth
0: yeah there there, there are data angles um, in my environment we don't have the luxury of seeing it live um, I would say that so there there are there are multiple approaches um, the one that I um, was first exposed to in the professional setting is a very like novel like, up-and-coming approach and that basically converted, um, like activity of the, that took place in the game into metabolic power. Um, so you could actually figure out like a player's individual expenditure per their weight. Um, hmm. so that is very, um, not commonplace throughout, uh, throughout the the football industry. More, more commonly, um, they'll measure like Number of distance you'll have, high-speed running distance, sprint distance, um, like maximum velocity, acceleration, deceleration, or changes of directions. Uh, perhaps number of sprints that go uh, further than a certain like distance. Like there'll there will be GPS units that the players wear that look like sports bras. There's actually it, those are just mechanisms. Yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean for for the for people that are unfamiliar with that. Um, And so that's kind of the main, like, that's the main mechanism to to view like how those um, get calculated. And so like Stat Sports does like a really, they do pretty good from what I understand, job of like live tabulating it. But um, one size doesn't fit all for clubs that use these services, so they modify them until whatever fits them. So the Philadelphia Union's. Um, approach would differ in some sense from lafc's approach because we'll prioritize different things for our players lafc i feel like would be more change of direction focused i don't know i'm not in that environment well Hmm. um like we are the philadelphia union are very like vertically focused and high speed running focused so that's a big big thing in how we play um so it, it changes like there's within your game model there's in your style of play like there's different physical emphasis points that have to take place for it to come out effectively. So so let's say
1: hypothetically um with with your team specifically um there is this notion that we've kind of briefly touched upon of the sunk costs fallacy in which let's say like a player or a coach puts out their their starting 11, they feel as though that's the best one, the one that's most apt to take on this challenge. Uh they need to make their substitutions and there might be a little bit of of uh, hesitance when it comes to yanking off somebody that you initially were like, you know what, this is the right person, and then you're almost admitting that they maybe are wrong, right? Because the sunk cost fallacy effectively says that us humans irrationally um, place value in things that are of, have already kind of dissipated. So, like this idea that if you buy a ticket to a concert. And the concert sucks that you have to stay at the concert because you already paid for it. Whereas in reality, the money's been spent. And the only thing that you're going to do by staying at a sucky concert is worsen your experience overall even more. And so by leaving, you mitigate the damage as opposed to staying and making it worse. Right. So my question to you is we talk about how, okay, data maybe is is more or less available. If we're talking about, you know, you're you're you're. Performance environment is one that is at a very high level, even for, let's say, like youth coaches across the country that don't have any data whatsoever. The challenge, right, is like you occasionally would keep a player on to see if they turn good. Um, that's using your words, I believe, from a, from a conversation we had previously, like hoping that somebody might finally find their 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 way into a game. How would you distinguish what that threshold is? Like how long do you wait? Is there a point at which you figure, you know what, it's not going to happen. Like, h- how much time does it take to make that switch from having, you know, an average Mesut Ozil game to suddenly changing it in in the flick of a switch?
0: From my experience, there's typically, like, a breaking point action, whether it's, like, someone not pressing a ball or, like, a bad pass. Like, coaches see that. Like, I've seen enough. That's kind of, like, the breaking hmm. point that typically happens for coaches. But a,
1: but I, a negative thing.
0: Yeah, it's typically a negative thing. It's never like... Okay. um, And or like a certain amount of time goes by and they kind of like realize like, you know what? Like, I don't think it's going to happen. Like someone else needs a chance. And mm-hmm. like, uh, it's, there's not really like a, like a pure scientific, like, or like, like pinpoint, like it comes in the field of the game. And, and, and my environment is unique in that, um, what the, what the objectives of player performance are, um, in my previous environment, I used to work for Oakwood Soccer Club in Connecticut. Um, like, winning wasn't the goal in that setting, but there there came age groups where winning was the goal, as long as it was in, was in our style of play. And, um, like we would leave good players on for like key games just to see if they could come come good. Um, yeah. While, like, so that we could win the game, while if a player is not playing well, that is in as in contention for being evaluated for a first team contract. Like we leave them on to see like how they do psychologically and if they can handle, it. and like it's more evidence of like supporting or declining, like this player being like worth a contract. So the, the, the investment angle is totally different than, than 99% of the typical like soccer, like American soccer coaches environment. So, um, We don't really have like a situation ever where yeah you know what this person like we're wrong about their starting selection and he's going to come off the pitch like it's more of this person is not performing to the level we need and we need to take them off um so that someone else can perform better or it's like we need to leave this person on and like see how they handle it because you can tell psychologically like if someone has three or four bad actions and then maybe they've been yelled at by their teammates or the head coach, like how do they handle it? Are they able to turn that around? So from a player development side of things, like that is a little bit different than at the top level where, yeah, like this is a champions league game. Um, In the first half you didn't perform. And now like we need to see if you perform in the first 15 minutes of the second half, but wait, never mind. Julian Nogglesman's your coach. He doesn't care about that. He's, he's taking you off. Um, So there's different angles about how, like, the thought process of when to take off a player is, Um, and it's not entirely results-based, and uh, for most people, it starts with that, but for player evaluation, it does not necessarily look like that.
1: Hmm. So you mentioned your time at, at, at Oakwood, and I realized that I was probably a little bit overzealous at the beginning of the pod and, and failed to actually introduce you entirely properly. I want to give you the chance to actually, we'll do a little pause in our, in our discourse here, um, just so you can share a little bit with uh, the listeners who many of which I'm sure already know of you, um, kind of what your general background is, just as a quick pause, uh, how, you know, how you are gotten to the places that you are at right now. I feel like we've been talking about Philly and and Oakwood and other things without providing any context. So um, I was probably too excited to talk and we just hopped right into it, but why don't you go ahead and do that? And then I want to actually comment on one of the things that you just mentioned.
0: Yeah, I'll keep it quick. Um, So I began coaching around the time I was 17 or 18 years old. Uh, I coached for the uh, greater Boston bolts who I used to play for as a kid. Um, So miles Robinson of the national team, he was in the same Player age group that I was in as kind of a reference. Hmm. Um, so began taking my licenses shortly around that time, and, and writing for my own tactical blog. Um, and I went to Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, um, and I graduated with an economics degree. But while I was in college there, I coached for four years at Oakwood Soccer Club as their I was their head of video analysis and um, assisted in head coach like U nineteen, U seventeen, U sixteen teams. Um, in the summer of 2020, um, the Philadelphia Union uh, offered me a position as uh, analyst and second uh, analyst and assistant coach for their second team, which was in the USL for the 2020 season, um, and kind of in a comp- competition limbo for 2021. Um, and we will be joining the upcoming MLS U23 Reserve League that's been uh, pipelined and rumored with announcements probably to come soon. I don't I don't have any idea. But um <laughs> it's all right. You don't have to be uh, a
1: spokesperson for that. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's that's kind of that's kind of my background. And um I forgot to mention as well, like my tactical writing eventually led to me being offered a position with Speavalagarung and all the influential people that have come from that environment. And then uh I've also co founded a website, Soccer Detail, with the Dean Osman Basic, um, which is kind of more North American centric to promote some of those similar discussions, but um, that's like a very brief synopsis of uh, what I bring to the table in terms of my background and expertise in the air quotes.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, brief and very dense. Soccer detail is actually, that's the context, I suppose, for this conversation that matters most in terms of how you and I came in contact. Mm-hmm. Um, SD was gracious enough to take me on as a, as a writer, earlier in the spring after I sent one of the, uh, touchline theory pieces to a Dean. And, um, I, I, I very much enjoyed obviously interacting with all the, all the folks in that group. Um, but I felt as though your background was important to give some context for things, but, but right going back into things. So you had mentioned, you know, if you're Julian Nagelsmann, um, you don't care about the, the timing of, of the substitutions. You make the substitutions when you feel as though they are necessary. Um, one of the things that I want to get into is a little bit this notion of uh, perfecting the timing of these of these moments, right? It's mm-hmm. a we are given the freedom to make substitutions whenever we want, and you're limited in, in quantity, but not necessarily the moment or the moments in which you 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 add those things or you inject that influence. And so, tell me a little bit about generally, you know, the strategy behind how you time your changes. Why maybe some coaches put more stock into it than others? Why some feel uh, reluctant to maybe sub on too early like you had alluded to with Nagelsmann being kind of the antithesis of that um, and and just generally like what's the approach to timing
0: changes in a match in which those changes are limited? So I think people are reluctant to sub after substitute after halftime be, um, unless it's like a dire like tactical switch because their players come off of a break yep. and essentially like you, you use that like period to recharge and so that's why they're really reluctant to do that unless there's hmm. a playing time motivation or there's a tactical switch that absolutely has to take place.
1: But let's say what if it's something like it's the 30th minute.
0: Um, first half substitutions are almost never used and I think it's because of like the quantity of the energy system that's in place for this. So like as you alluded to earlier, your starting 11 will still play a majority of the match. And so I think like you have to, or manage uh, strategically, it doesn't make sense unless the strategy isn't working, like obviously isn't working to pull players. um, uh, If like to, to pull players after not giving your supposedly dominant strategy enough time to actually develop and see if it works. So, yeah. Um that's like that's kind of the main reason why first half substitutions are quite rare with the exception and of injury or red cards. And I'll mention too
1: that that's something that we'll maybe talk about in the second half a little bit regarding the possibility for alternative strategies and you know you mentioned the fact that this is like your dominant strategy your starting 11 is your is your ideal best scenario. Um I, I do think there is room in which the starting 11 does not represent your top 11 players. And it allows you actually to kind of force the hand of the opponent to allow you to react a little bit more. And we'll get into that later, but going back to the notion of timing, I mean, like aside from first half subs um, you know, are are you putting players in, in the 60th minute, the 70th minute, the 80th, 90th, what goes into that decision?
0: Um, I think there's some element of like, 60th minute I think is what is really common um and substitution hesitant coaches can be can do so for a number of reasons maybe they're like I don't trust these guys in my bench at all I'm going to put them as in as little as I can um (laughs) and so like they basically feel like they bring in players when they have to so that's why players might come in and like the first sub might be made in like the 80th minute um so that's more of a
1: function of like your reserves not necessarily or your bench not being deep enough to actually yeah. compete, yeah. That's, and your that's, quality that's, across that's the like, roster that's is a, that.
0: that's a trust thing with the coach or a discrepancy mm. within the squad. And I think teams with better squads tend to make substitutions earlier because they understand the marginal differences between the starting winger, the starting left winger, and the substitute left winger, which would be quite small for for many top teams um
1: so given that framework though like how late would be too late in your eyes
0: that's really difficult to say purely abstractly um i would say if it's earlier than minute like earlier than 10 minutes before the end of the match it's Or later than 10 minutes before the end of the match, whatever that ends up being. So if there's seven minutes of stoppage time, that that's minute 87. If it's yeah, if there's no stoppage time, it's minute 80. I think ten minutes is like the amount of time that we're like where you could basically say, okay, can this player somewhat do something in the game? And even then extremely short, but it's not an insignificant percentage. And depending on the flow of the game, they could have a lot of actions in a short amount of time.
1: I would still argue even considering that, right? If you compare, if you look at a, a player that is coming in with all that freshness, we talked about the water bottle earlier, the notion that, and I agree with you, I think 80th minute sounds pretty good to me, purely abstractly speaking. If you think about the fact that you have your top, your starter playing 80, and then your bench player playing 10, is that the correct distribution to attribute to each of those players? Is that something that is representative of their quality? It's almost like the question is like, at what point do you are you giving too many minutes to the inferior player, right? Because if you would you, would you say that a sub, let's say in like a Champions League team who is coming in on the eight, in the 80th minute, is that an optimized decision? Is that something where that player, you know, the starter shouldn't be off for more than 10 minutes because what they can give in the 79th minute is more than what the sub can give in the 79th minute?
0: Probably not in that sense. Like I feel like the subs, is you could probably do the same thing but what i do think is worth considering is essentially what tactics are are the, like their micro communication lenses that lead to better player actions and like if a player is not consistently involved with the group of players that are on the pitch to the extent that this starter is that ends up getting substituted off like that 20 seconds where they're off sync like that can lead to one of those high intensity Mm. moments that we discuss and it's a disconnect that 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 ripples through the rest of the team yes that impacts that okay impacts that team so i interesting I, i think i think there's multiple angles to look at it because from a purely like physical point of view of course they're fresher um but if you have a like if you if you look at your like let's say you have a midfield diamond and Like maybe your diamond, this player like is not in tune with the required distances. And even though he might be fitter, he's eight yards wider than he has to be. And that opens up a passing lane. Like, sorry, like it doesn't matter how fit he is. Like he's not, he's not in sync with the rest of the group. So Hmm. there's, there's that element to it that I think is a worthy consideration. And I think a man, I think a manager's ability to plug and place players in and, and seamlessly integrate them tactically is, a indi- is an indicator of how good they are rather than just how good their top players are because that shows an ability to teach his style of play to all players in the roster so that the next person can step in in the event of injury or whatever. Sure. I think not skipping a
1: beat is an important element of that type of thing. And what you're saying makes sense, this idea that like if you have a player who's going to go in and not only disrupt the opponent, but disrupt your own... Game model or your own automatisms that such that you expose things that your system is designed not to expose. Yeah, you might want to limit that to ten minutes. But here's my question: that on top of that, you know, let's say we go with the ten minute thing, where it's like, yeah, 80th up to the 80th minute, you give the player sufficient time, kind of just based on our own judgment. How do you justify then the fact that there are all of these extra time time wasting substitutions, where an a player a, a, this immensely useful tool is thrown on to kill three or two, three minutes at the end of a game. Is that something that you think is 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 worthwhile? Is that a, a total waste of, of a player trying to use them as a time-wasting device? Because that seems so common at the top level.
0: Yeah, I mean, it depends how much value you think the player has. I'm not saying that the player coming in is like a terrible player that doesn't deserve to play. Like, he, he probably deserves to play more. But of I think course. what what is worth discussing is how how bad referees are at attributing added time. So the ball is in play. In a, yeah, a, I agree. A, a, the ball is in play in a in a match for between fifty five to sixty five minutes. If they were legitimate about adding time, we would have like twenty minutes of added time each half. Mm-hmm. Forty, the ball being played for forty five minutes. Um, so if a player makes a substitution and that substitution goes for 50 minutes or not not 50 minutes 50 seconds the refs might add 15 of that at tops at tops to if at all like if at all to 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 the added time so so basically and, and this this
2: logic
1: i yeah. i agree with cool. uh, uh, like at large you know in a general sense i under, I, I totally agree with you that the adding of added time once you're already in added time is an inefficiency that's worth exploiting. But I suppose the question is like, even if we compare that 50 seconds to the 15 seconds, is that 35 second discrepancy the contribution that you would be content with from this player? It seems to me, every time I see a sub that's brought on in the 92nd minute to kill the last you know two to get to 94, it's almost like, could they have killed the game in a more effective way? Is there is there something going on there where that's still even if there is an inefficiency, it's not enough of an inefficiency to justify a, a human walking out of the field.
0: That's a, that's a fair point, and I think I think a similar like corollary corollary that's worth bringing up is the take it to the corner strategy. Um, I think the numbers game talks about this, where it's like that's not really noticeably different. Just go ahead and try and score, which intuitively like potentially exposes you and teams are not as comfortable doing that but that's what their hmm. research does. Um that's interesting so yeah i mean there's a point to that for sure i would also argue that like the impact that the player has with like let's say there's three minutes of a time and that substitution takes just under a minute and that allows the rhythm of the game to slow down and Organizes your team from a throw-in that potentially could have exposed you or something, and um, when you look at the league table and like you suddenly that those three points were the difference between you finishing ninth and twelfth, and your payout from the league comes like yeah, then it's pretty important at that level. So
1: I could certainly see how, in hindsight, you could you could attribute things to that. I, I think that the the I mean, well, apart from whatever skepticism i might have with regards to that strategy yeah one question that you kind of alluded to there in terms of like organizing on a throw-in there's a lot of uh stigma surrounding substituting on set pieces generally what's the logic behind that
0: uh players have their own assigned markers um and yeah you're right it is it is a cliche but essentially players have their own assigned markers and it's a difficult situation to move into the game immediately without like settling into it. That's, that's, that's the general like cliche of it.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think one, one of the things that I've always wondered, because that's always kind of like the motivation behind that, right? It's that, Oh, well you put a guy on a corner. They didn't know who they were supposed to get. And that is the person that headed it in. And I always ask myself, How difficult can it be for the player that comes off as they're coming off to simply tell them, hey, you're on 12 and to make that connection? Or is it just the actions, the physical exertion of suddenly exploding and keeping up with the guy that's running in for a header?
0: I I would say it's more along the lines of this, Martin, that it's like, imagine it's a corner kick and it's on the opposite side of the pitch. Okay. And so the player comes off and the substitute has to sprint to his marker. Yeah. To cover, to cover the guy. The referee will not give him the time to get in position. Right. Cause they'll just start it. Yeah. And so it's basically like there's this big recovery and like kind of m- like micro disorganization that takes place within <laughs> that. That like if a player is there on a set piece and the keeper's organizing like his specific positions, it's almost a comfort thing for lack yeah. of a word that. It's a little jarring. Um, yeah, it's 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 hard to like make a let's say forty yard like run and immediately have to stay tight to a guy and yeah. then move into all that chaos within a period of fifteen twenty seconds. Um I think when people have like a little bit more time, they get their position and ducks in a row, then like yeah, it's a little bit more comfortable. It's a it's a it's a, it's a I think within all the um like we're trying to exploit inefficiencies but i think player like preferences is something that's almost a little mm-hmm. uh discounted at times in some sense like what do they actually mm. want to do on the pitch
1: right and and so the, the the psychological angle of all of this i think is a key component i think that the idea that let's say if we go back to the notion of like a guy coming on in the 92nd minute to kill time if you are that player, regardless of the impact that you might ostensibly have on the game, that you might have been the guy that killed it, um, don't, you don't feel great when you're coming off the field and you know everybody's shaking hands and you're the dude that came on for a couple of seconds towards the end of the match. So a question that I want to ask you is, generally speaking, you have an entire bench of possible candidates that could come on. And for all they know, they might come on in the 60th minute. They might also come on in the 92nd. So how do you keep a bench motivated, especially if in theory you need not only your starting 11 to win the game but your starting 11 plus 3 or plus 5 as we'll discuss in the second half
0: um, In terms of motivation for these guys um, I think the like reward of winning and particularly the higher the competition level, like I think that's oftentimes a, a good enough incentive for some of these players to be able to buy in at some sense It's it it depends on like what type of again it depends on like what kind of people you actually have and um, people get motivated by different things. So maybe you're the player, one of the players that you put on the bench. Like maybe he wants to prove you wrong, and so he comes in and he performs well out of vengeance. And then there maybe are other people that come in and they want to perform well to like either earn earn more minutes themselves or they understand their role. And I think mm. regardless, I think if you're if you're if you communicate and say to your players why you are putting them in this situation and say, we want you to do this in this moment, be prepared for it. I think they'll mm. be understanding of it, um, provided they've been given enough notice and provided that they believe and trust that you have their best interests at heart or want to or the team's best interests or whoever. And that's a hard thing to establish, but I think that's why I think relationships with players and the, especially with these, this generation of players is really pivotal because, um, and I think we'll get into this more in terms of the youth development side of substitutions. Uh, if I'm yeah. correct, um, players, uh, no one starts every game they play, so they have to learn how to be a substitute. Um, and if you pitch it in a way that has like a larger end goal for them, then I think they'll generally get it. So
1: kind of going off of that, we're skipping over a handful of different things, but I do want to dive into this. You mentioned this, this idea that you can like communicate to uh, a player and have those lines of communication open, right? That if you are comfortable talking to guys and being honest with them, then they should have faith in your process and your selection and that it's, you know, meritocratic and whatever. And that's kind of founded on having a, team culture that is based on a meritocracy where if everybody in a highly efficient fashion, right, all believe that the minutes are distributed based on quality and effort and and contribution to the team and things like that, then there ought to be no reason for people to be upset. But the fact of the matter is, as humans, we're unable to maintain that perfect kind of society. So let's say, hypothetically, you have a guy that needs to be on the bench because of one reason or another, but they are an authentic starter in your team, right? And you need them to when they are going to come on, you need them to make the impact they're going to have. But let's say you've rewarded a different player for a certain behavior or series of actions and training by giving them the start instead. And this kid, let's say, I don't know, has a little bit of petulance in them. They're pissed off. They don't like the decision. They don't agree with it because they're on paper better than the other guy. And just because they worked harder, it doesn't matter what have you. How do you how do you corral that? Like how do you get that player to say to realize when you when you look at them and you say, "Hey, you know, you still matter in this match. This is it is important that you stay locked in, that you focus, that you observe what's happening." They might look at you and say, "I don't care what you say because you made the wrong decision and I'm pissed off right now." What's your approach to say that type of hypothetical situation?
0: As a hypothetical situation, I would like embrace the kind of petulance the player has and be like, "Okay, you need to prove me wrong then." like hmm. i don't i don't i don't care about being wrong in this moment flip it well. flip it back on them yeah and hmm. if, if someone can handle being benched in this setting whatever setting it is there yeah it's likely a higher level where they will be on the bench and so like that that's just something that a player needs to actually understand how to do
1: I like that. I think that conversation can be very simple. You basically look at them, they, they they tell you, hey, I think you made a mistake, and you say, well, I'm glad that you think that. Now it's time for you to convince me of it. And it can be a very quick you're, you're, interaction.
0: Have, I don't think the, that person would care about convincing me. It would be, you need to convince, like, you need to convince yourself that I made the wrong choice. Hmm, That's, interesting. Like, like, more like, of an like,
1: introspective activity.
0: Yeah, like, you um, you need to, like, you need to show, show the world that, like, basically like this person will probably not be seeking my approval if they're, right. not, if they're not, at this
1: point, they've, they've lost their net. interest in that theoretically. Yeah. Like yeah. you
0: need to prove to yourself that I made the wrong choice. Like actually, interesting, actually demonstrate it. And so, um, because this person could be really difficult to to manage in some sense, but yeah. like, honestly, a lot of the best players are, have their own quirks that are like, this person is so difficult to deal with, but you know what? Like he puts the ball in the back of the net or, He makes ridiculous saves and you got to have to learn how to manage those personalities and know what makes them tick. And I think the only way you can really do that is if you have like a pretty con, like it doesn't have to be perfect all the time. Michael Phelps hated his coach at moments, but Michael Phelps is also the most successful um, Olympian ever. So Mm. clearly something worked between the kind of toxicity within that relationship at times to get the best out of each other. It's, the, none of, not every conversation you have as a player, coach, manager is going to be pleasant. Sometimes it's no, gonna, not at all. It's going to be difficult, and you have to embrace that in some sense to get the best out of other people.
1: I think all things considered, and you and I have talked about this, the, the role of the coach is fundamentally often to make lose-lose decisions and simply be the one that's comfortable doing it. Yeah. And there are a lot of moments in which there is no rose-tinted glasses uh, on the table for you to grab and look things through and say, "Hey, there's silver linings here. Both options may be a problem, and you need to figure out how to navigate that." And that is one of the challenges, and one of the you know it's an art to do that. But w- one of the things when when talking about just generally the bench that I wanted to add to what you had mentioned earlier is this idea of the communication and the interactions between the coach and the bench throughout the match itself. It seems weird to me, or it always has seemed bizarre that typically. The players will be off in the stands, especially now with COVID and everything, where they're all wearing their mask and they're all like, you know, four seats apart and things like that. They're physically and visually isolated from the coaching staff and the coaching staff has the main coach who's up on the touchline and then the rest of them are maybe bundled up and occasionally they'll go back and sit with them. But what tends to happen is that over the course of the game, the players will observe the match kind of on their own and then the coach will observe it. And everybody collectively waits until halftime to receive the insights, right? The coach has to consolidate their thoughts. They might receive a video clip or two from upstairs, some sort of, uh, you know, live GPS data to show some sort of thing about the opponent, what have you. It seems to me like waiting until halftime to receive all the insights in one go may not be the best way to do it. Why do you feel maybe that that's like what people do? Or do you think there's a better way? Because I certainly do. But I want to hear your thoughts first.
0: Yeah, I think there's a really good point to bring about like halftime, like the amount of working memory that's going to be required to remember all the stuff that people that a coach will mention in halftime is really, really high. <laughs> so there's no way a player is going to pick up all of it. Never mind, probably more than sixty percent of it. I would mm-hmm. be really impressed if if that was the case. Um, and I think that's why if you give like individual like things. So let's say you're discussing about the back line, that gives kind of the permission for the strikers to tune out for a moment. It's like kind of um kind of like divvying up like coaching points functionally, individually, so that each player can remember a couple things and implement them in the next half. Hmm. And for the, I like that. and for the substitutes, um we talked about like the breaks in the game, how the ball's in play for roughly thirty minutes a half there's no reason for me to think that within those 15 minutes you or another coach just turns around and says, Hey, like you see this gap between the two center backs, like totally, or, what can you do to do this? And obviously you need someone to have their eyes in the game. And I think a head coach is pretty uncomfortable doing that. So you need to trust your staff in some way or delegate to your staff. If you have that option um, to save those things. And additionally, um i would also implore like players giving like particularly younger players like something to do during the game um as in like like whether they're counting for something or like hey like what is their formation who are their key players what are they doing your corner kicks so they yeah yeah look at the game rather than talk about whatever else is going on in their lives. Because there have been that some bench conversations that every coach has heard that is like, why is this taking place on my bench? <laughs> so, so so it's interesting you say that because that, that is largely
1: the, the point that I was going to bring up, which is this notion that I think a lot of the bench observation can tend to be passive, especially if you've lost the attention of a player who feels as though they should be on the field. And so one of the things that I would propose and that I, you know, once my... Once I'm more settled in my life and able to have a team of my own, I think is asking them specifically these broad kind of sweeping questions about what they are noticing. And perhaps, you know, there's there's a lot of research that's gone into whether in classroom settings you ought to cold call people and things like that. I'm not saying it's necessarily in front of people, but going, walking the bench, sitting down next to a player and asking them, all right, tell me, what are you seeing is a way that gives them a lot of agency, I think in the problem solving efforts and it's less of, all right, well, I just watched this very passively with kind of my brain switched off. I'm not going to get into this half anyway. So I guess I'll just wait until the coach tells me that there are three main points at the half. And and it, it almost begs the question, like in ma- obviously with cameras and, and stadiums full of fans and stuff, you can't have everybody all together trying to figure out the game. And with a whiteboard that everybody kind of collectively moves the little magnets around, but, but it's curious to me that, that more coaches don't do that more often and, and involve them and allow the players to also have a part in decomposing what the game ought to offer and asking them, you know, hey, you just discovered this. You just realized that this is something that we're missing. Can you bring that? And I think that gives them a lot more purpose too when they enter the field.
0: So that's just a high-level concept. Um, and but- I, would, I would add to that just like each individual is going to bring something different. I spent probably more time on the bench than I actually did on the field, particularly mm-hmm. at, when I got to higher levels. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, I would be the first person to answer some of those questions, and some guys would be like, I don't care. So yeah, yeah, I think if you make it relevant to what players care about or are interested in, that is guaranteed to kind of engage them a bit and be like, uh, even, even if it's like a if you take your egotistical, like fast winger for instance, or something mm-hmm. and you might be like, Hey, you notice how, uh, how long it took that left back to recover. And they'll be like, no, I didn't see it. And I was like, look for it next time, dude. Like, this is something you could take advantage of. And hmm. like that kind of, that kind of feeds into their own ego in some way. Like, yeah. Like you provide like, them more. So yeah, like, yeah, like I can, uh, I can dunk on this dude. Right. Hmm. And, um, each player is going to have different things that drive them. And as a, coach you need to have a good pulse of what drives them So, um, I like that so like that w- within the substitution there's a lot of I don't want to say it's psychological but it's kind of relation, it's, it's relationship and mo- like motivational based and not motivational as in like you're given the pep talk you have to feed into what players self motivations are and just just provoke them in some way like if if needed. So
1: sure. You can make the questions very pointed towards specific individuals. I like that too, as opposed to say going up to, you know, a different player every, every 10 minutes and asking them what they're noticing, which I think does promote this idea of, Hey, the coach might ask me at any time to report my findings. I ought to be looking for things and more engaged with the match, but also feeding the players kind Mm -hmm. of like specific bait that might get them thinking about things. I think that's a good approach as well. Um, we talked about a little bit like how you frame being a sub psychologically speaking. Um, One of the things that I find interesting that's being talked about a little bit is how certain coaches are altering the nomenclature of substitutions to try to, uh, you know, sweeten the deal a little bit for players. I think that substitute is a negative term that suggests that you aren't good enough to be the one being substituted. Um, I know Burhalter has talked about this. There's other coaches as well that have discussed calling subs finishers, solutions, these Terms that I think people perhaps who have a very, very intellectual view of the game might look at and think, yeah, that's kind of just like nonsense. But do you see any validity in adjusting the, the way that these terms are framed? Is that just calling a player, a finisher embolden them more? Or is it just a, you know, a bunch of surface level, like nonsense.
0: Um, Part of me, part of me looks at it with like the, like, Oh, like that's some like corporate like 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 <laughs> washing of a word. Um, yeah, and then for some players, I think they could embrace that role a little bit. Um, in some sense, it. But I don't think the name of it matters so much as the function. Like, you could have a really sick job title and and not really do anything and be unhappy with it. And they mm, could be okay. like, hey, like we're gonna make you like vice president of office compliance or something. And that might just mean like you stock shelves. like And it still ooh, sucks. Yeah. Like, like I, th- I think it's like the actual role that you play um, matters much more than the term that is used to describe like what you do. And because it- in the end players want to feel valued um, and they can, I think they can kind of see through some of the stuff that like, A coach might do. And
1: yeah, it definitely has to be genuine, first and foremost. We talked about this also in a previous episode about how, like, all sorts of teams, specifically in the MLS, are are rebranding a lot, whether it be with the badge. I know, like, the Revolution are rebranding very, very recently and trying to get into kind of the psychology behind that. And one of the takeaways that we had discussed was this idea that if a rebrand is to happen, it needs to actually represent changes that are happening systemically within the club. It has to represent some actual identity change that isn't just superficial because otherwise you lack the buy-in. And we don't have to talk about badges necessarily, but I think it's similar where like, if you're gonna call them a finisher, you need to set up substitutes such that they are designed to finish a match, whatever definition you have for that term. And that they feel as though they can really, really embody what that term means. Um, but in order to speed things up to get into our, 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 halftime break, which won't be a halftime break, it'll be like a two thirds break at this point. Um, a couple of quick fire final questions before we, before we kind of go and get a, get some water and, and chill out for a second. So one of the things that's interesting about substitutions, tactically speaking, is the back and forth aspect, right? It's kind of like chess in a sense, especially when you get to the higher level, when the, um, subs themselves are, are limited in number, um, questions that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on. I'll start. Should you ever go first to substitute?
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't see that how there's a problem with it. I think the stigma of like waiting to see what happens is like, that seems like a very reactive approach. I think substituting versus definitely proactive in some sense, and it depends on the state of the game, but imagine you're, you're Bayern Munich and like, it's zero zero to Champions League, like 60th, 60th minute, and you sub on Leroy Sane. You sub on, uh, maybe you sub on, uh, like Lucas Hernandez and you push Davies up the field or something. Like, and then you sure. also will sub on, um, Kings of Coma or something. And like, you look at that and you see those three people come on from the sideline, and you're, uh, and you're a player trying to hold on for dear life and you're just like oh my god like it's over what that's overwhelming like and that is like a like as a coach as a as a player like if you could bring on that type of talent or just like even like a player that like that is really well regarded and it's like shoot like this guy's good like like now we got something to really hold on to i don't see any problem in that Um, Okay. So, so, but let's take that idea, right? We're taking Bayern Munich, which is
1: naturally a team that is seldom reactive. Generally speaking, they tend to be the one that, that call the shots. What if you're Bochum and you're playing Bayern Munich and you are a team that I don't know a lot about Bochum. Let's just say any team that is worse than Bayern that is considered to be the underdog in that, in that understandable. Uh, a team that is reacting the entire match from this kind of theoretical standpoint is it wise to make your change first is is the is the the action of you putting on a player and adjusting something tactically or or you know adjusting your energy levels based on your own plan is that more valuable than waiting to see what the opponent will do in terms of changes and reacting accordingly how would you kind of attribute that do you make the first two subs based on what you really want and then maybe the third one is to accommodate what they've done how do you consider the strategy
0: there um, the state the the score of the game the game state what whether it's 10 men or 11 men that that guides your decision making um, if you let's say like you've had let's say you're like really trying to go for it and like you're trying to press Bayern and like you've managed to it's 0-0 at minute 55 and you're noticing like hey like if we don't change our forward at some point like they're going to be able to play through our defense and so we need to change this player fully support that decision. I would, there's mm. no, there's no, um no issue from my end on that. Um, if you're proactive about why you're making your changes um, when it comes to making the first sub. And one of the things that like one of my favorite coaches, Juan Carlos Osorio does is he'll make those first moves um, and then see how his Counterpart reacts and then starts that kind of game. He rather hmm. than being the person that like reacts to what the other person does first, he can still react to what the other coach does. Like, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and he I he think,
1: initiates the first provocation is what you're saying. Like he puts out the first card, waits to see what they do, and then they get back into the back and forth a little more. Yeah,
0: and, and of course, like if you are winning, like you have the luxury of being able to do that. And that's, some people might say, don't change a winning team and that's absolutely fair in in some hmm. sense, but um, like the one through twenty three, I think needs to be embraced far more than it is by most uh, most coaches, at least in the public eye. Um, hmm. so that's that's like a personal belief I had, and one of the things that I love so much about Juan Carlos Osorio that I could go on for days about with his with his teams in the past, but. Hmm.
1: So, okay. Different question then. Um, Should you ever make us more than one sub at once? What do you sacrifice when you, let's say, with only three substitutions, you make two guys go in at the same time? Obviously, game state dependent, right? If you're trying to kill time, it's not very intelligent, not super wise. But what's the logic behind that? That putting two players on the field suddenly gives you double the sudden uh, change and
0: it's even more destabilizing? Uh, no, but there is a uh, generally a correlation between ball and play time and uh, ho- the higher level of play. So if you need to make your changes, do as many of them as you can quickly if you are chasing a game and you're the better team. There's hmm. an absolute correlation between the, number, the amount of time a ball is in play at the higher level alongside um, ball possession and the level of a team too. So it's like a time maximization strategy as much as a, like you're not going to double the change. You're actually just making the best usage of your time.
2: Hmm.
1: Interesting. And that's effectively saying that you probably should have made one of those players come in earlier, if anything. You wouldn't postpone somebody coming on just to have them isolated and be able to see with the, you know, one minute how the opponent responds or one other thing. But it's more like, oh, like something, something suddenly has happened. I need to make changes. I probably could have had one of these guys go on ten minutes ago, but now they're both coming on because we have to get to the point where they are making the impact that's necessary.
0: Yeah, I mean, it depends. Like something, an event could have happened in those ten minutes too. Um, hmm. Maybe one of those players like was supposed to come in, and then <laughs> there's an injury on the pitch, and you just want to get the guy off. Like, well, I'm it, glad you
1: bring. I'm glad, glad you yeah.
0: bring that up specifically. But sure, I didn't mean to cut across yeah. you. Um, that's. That's just one situation, and I think coaches need to be really like flexible and dynamic, and how they think and react, and don't discount the don't discount the possibility of a uh, hit in the fan, like in right. terms of what you might need to do late in a game or or whatever. So make sure prepare for the worst is something that you also need to be able to do.
1: So based on that, my next question was going to effectively be, you know, there is always a risk that if you get to the end of the game you have somebody that gets injured and suddenly you have to play the last 10 minutes without you know down a man or something like you had mentioned kind of does not go according to plan um how long do you wait before assuming that it's safe to make your final sub
0: oh uh, that's tough and i don't have a great answer for that like I'll, i don't have a great answer for that <laughs> Um again like, like the 10 minute mark for me, it just feels like intuitively right hmm. for like when you want to make that last sub if, if you're comfortable with the discrepancy in your squad. Not every not every team is. And so you might have a you might have a center midfielder that, yeah, like He's running on his last legs, but like that person will do things that no other player will do to make sure that you guys end up winning. Hmm. And so you're not gonna set that player out. Or he's the vocal leader of the team and like you're not gonna set the player out because your team is facing adversity. Um and you need the guy that rallies the troops in addition to what you do. So that's a hard that's a hard situation. And um Like you have to really know your players to know if they're comfortable coming out. Like a player hates getting substituted off too. Like Mm -hmm. that's a really uncomfortable situation to deal with as a coach, and that's where you have to kind of know your players. Like which ones are gonna, if you're winning and a player comes off, like which ones are gonna throw a fit about it versus which ones are gonna be like, yeah, you know what, like this is probably the this is I'm 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 content with this decision because you're, it's an ego. Humbling thing to get substituted out of a game.
1: You're basically doing a walk of shame across the entire field. You can't go off, you know, for the most part. In a lot of circumstances, just on the other side, quickly, you know, yeah. put a hood over your head, pretend like it doesn't exist. You have to march across alone in front of everyone. So yeah, I agree with that.
0: Um, something uh, something else I'd add. I think now that there's more substitutes, which I think sets us nicely to the second half. That stigma is increasing mm-hmm. more and more, but still. It's not, not a fun thing to do still exists. So final question before we go into our break,
1: um, let's say you have that substitute and things do go haywire and you say, go down to 10 men. What's the strategy behind accommodating your team structure when the opponent has gone down? And then we can flip that to say, what do you do when you go down yourself? And again, very, you know, game state dependent, but generally speaking, what's the background?
0: Uh, When the opponent goes down, um, you want to – they're going to – I think it's not as, like, self-inflicting as teams think because the adjustments Mm -hmm. that teams make um, when they go down to 10 men are really self-preservational that just add, like, difficulty to a situation that – like with 11 men, it would still be hard, but with 10 men, it's like the same it's more or less the same picture. There might be like one player higher up the one player less higher up the pitch. Um, hmm. they'll, they'll oftentimes adjust their tactics like in that way. And so yeah, um, it comes down to like how can you just take advantage of the numbers up that you can get and push more numbers into places where you can be numbers even?
1: What, what so. you're talking about actually touches upon an interesting thing that I've alluded to a couple of different episodes that we've had on this show, but we had episode four was was on uh, crime and punishment, basically. It was about, like, do yellow cards work? And one of the things we talked about was how red cards can sometimes be actually a huge disadvantage for the team that is supposed to be winning the advantage in the sense that teams will totally overcorrect once they're going yeah. down a man yeah, and precisely. just block up everything. Yeah. And it's almost... Not a good thing if that happens and you're chasing a match. But um, last thing, what what happens if you if the opposite occurs and you are the one that's red carded? Is there some you know? Do you do that overcorrection? How do you play when you? It's not a game of finding you know the free man, but they will always have a free man and they're always going to be numerically superior to you in every area of the field.
0: My favorite 10 men game ever was a Manchester derby. Um, I think sometime in 2011, 2012. I know Manchini was the manager. And hmm. um, Manchester City played a 3-4-2. They, I, I think they played like 4-2-3-1 at that time. But they switched to a 3-4-2 with wingbacks. Okay. And they dominated 11 <laughs> United. And, like, I was a Manchester United fan at the time. And I remember being so, like, how on earth this is happening. Um that's fascinating. And for me, like I think there are that shape in particular is so well balanced in all three lines of play. Three, four, for, two, interesting. For a ten man system. And I think if you're um I would I would recommend that to almost anyone for mm. what to do with ten men because like the you just need to be able to cover the spaces in between, but it's, it's not it's almost it's not that much different than a four-four-two, and if yeah. you're already conceding the width that you're like the space behind, like if you have wing back type players, then you can probably do it. Like I, I, that's that's like the that's that would be my rule of thumb. Anytime I go down to ten men, is switch to four-two hmm. if I'm losing a game.
1: That's. Brilliant anecdote right there. I love that. A 3-4-2, realistically, for a team that is excited that your player has been sent off. Good luck finding the space in that because realistically speaking, it's very indistinguishable and it's an excellent distribution of resources. I really, really like that, honestly. The
2: the,
0: the, the space will be between in some sense, but if you compact the lines enough, you'll you can probably manage it. And then from there the space would be behind in these gaps between your right midfielder or right wing back, whatever you'd want to sure. call it, and your outside center backs, which is not really dangerous. It's not a and space basically then, at all. And then the space on the outside of your strikers, which if you have somewhat decent like midfield positioning, which this would be hard to teach 100%, really hard to teach um, in the flow of the game and I think would require some – but if they can just step to the fullback as that as that comes, like you probably can handle it. Like so think about
1: it. If you if you have realistically speaking, if you're playing against a back four with fullbacks that are on the ball, they can occupy those spaces without really threatening anything. You're probably fine to concede the space on the sides of the strikers in which each of the strikers can press each of the center backs individually. And if the ball into the corner flag is the thing that's worrying you because you have a wide midfielder and a wide center back you probably still have a team that's capable of back pressing, like with the wide midfielder in the corner and a center back that can go head on with any sort of challenge like that, such that honestly it's, 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 it's a very foolproof design. I like that a lot. So that's a, a great, um, I think example to end, end this half again, I keep calling it a half, but this will be a little bit shorter the second round, but, um, Let's be back after the break and we'll dive right back into things. And we're back. We are going to dive right back into things. Um, I I mentioned that the second half is going to contain some more uh, discussion about changes and other sort of novel ideas within the context of substitutions. So I I want to dive right into the conversation regarding youth players. This is just generally kind of like, a different lens through which we can, we can evaluate things. But Austin, you've mentioned to me that your performance environment has recently brought in an interesting influence that has some new ideas regarding how to teach young prodigious players who you know by nature of being a prodigy and by nature of 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 rising through the ranks have likely been you know stars at every single youth level have been starting and playing the vast majority of all their games and suddenly when you get to the upper ceiling you reach a point where you're going to be coming on as a sub there's very few moments in which say an example like Pedri for Barcelona which is close to my heart where a guy comes in and he doesn't even necessarily rise up he's just 17 and he suddenly undroppable from the starting 11 that doesn't really happen for the most part it's this ascension through the floor and there is a bit of a different role these players have to learn how to occupy right what's your what's your take on that or what's the um the logic
0: there yeah i mean for for a like a did pro like a prodigious talent like you said um very like they will almost never emerge. Their first appearance will almost never be a start. Has to be a substitute, or likely be a substitute appearance, and their first number of appearances will be substitute appearances. And so, with exception of maybe goalkeepers, hmm. but um, even then, like these young players, they have to understand of how to make impacts in small amounts of time and. Impact can be very subjective. It can be actually getting on the score sheet or assisting. It can be just doing the defensive responsibilities of the position and keeping three points. Um, It can be like really, it can be kind of frustrating the opponent with kind of being like a scapegoat for like frustrations against them and being a time waster. It can be that kind of thing. Basically like, the role that these talent, like these types of young players have that are emerging through, they earn a starting place at some point that that's not given to them. And so the way that they earn it is through their mm-hmm. display in game situations, likely beginning from bench performances. Hmm. And so So that's
1: interesting that, that, that you bring that up specifically, the notion that you have to earn it, because one of the things that I think actually debilitates a lot of substitutes in their efforts to get to that point is this idea that when you come on, you have less time to make an impact and you perhaps are channeled or pigeonholed into being less risk averse because of that. Right? There's an example that I've seen for months and months and months with Ricky Pooge who's a guy that has very select minutes, is a very energetic player, kind of an ideal sub, all things considered, given that he comes in and livens up the play every time he comes on the field. But one of the things that he's suffered with from what I've noticed recently is that when he comes on, he always seems to feel, like this year in particular, that he has to justify it and make an impression. There's all this buzz about Komen and him not getting along, what have you. And so when this happens, he, who's... What in Spanish is called an interior, this guy that's like kind of occupying the half space and is somewhat between an eight and a 10 in a sense, it's kind of like what Iniesta was. Um, he he because he makes more mistakes when he comes on the field now because he's shooting for that big moment in which he makes the convincing impact optically for the fans and for people to really back him playing and say, you know, this guy really deserves to start or get more minutes generally, even if his role as a midfielder is just to keep the ball, to keep it moving, to to do things that are, you know, maybe the coach would put forth as objectives. Like you mentioned, do the defensive responsibilities, be a nuisance. But for them, there might be some psychology behind like, all right, now I got to make an impact. And that might drive you to play in a way that isn't how you would
0: organically do so. Yeah, yeah I, I see this somewhat often um, in my setting too, where like they have to feel like, like this is their moment to justify like their their role as opposed to or justify like that their their case for minutes and overcomplicate the situation. Hmm. I think that's a maturity thing about like n- like w- knowing what needs to get done. And so this happens a lot too. Like in imagine like it's your first day of first team training, and you're you're a young prospect and you move up. And suddenly you start trying to take players on one on one.
2: Well,
0: that's not your strength, and you're trying to show that you belong. The way that you show you that you belong is just by playing to your strengths, and and doing not not saying doing what is asked of you in like a conformist way, but doing what is needed from your expectation from the expectations of your role, um, and then. Providing your own spin on it within like a healthy way of kind of bending or breaking rules of the game model, as long as it doesn't affect the other players, uh, hmm. or affect the other players so much. Like if you're good example is like a okay, you might be able to have like five six sprints in behind, like because that's the role that you've been given, and sure that might impact your pressing at times, um, but like make sure you put in some defensive effort like you're not going to put in none. Hmm. So that's a that's a good kind of analogous comparison of like how that player might gradually like begin to earn more minutes and like like we said with the with the entropy points like maybe that's just the best role for them at this time and they have to come up with a way to integrate this player Differently than the other players in their starting eleven, because of the different traits that they bring, and they haven't hmm. and they haven't come to that solution yet. Sure, sure.
1: Okay, so so let's. I like that a lot. Let's pivot to to subs coaches. So this is a new thing. Yeah, this is an emerging thing. There's been this recent article in the Athletic that talked about this. There's a video on Tifo that's talked about this. Um, Wimbledon, I believe, is kind of breaking this new frontier of actually dedicating a staff member to work with substitutes. Uh, it's an inefficiency yeah. that they've noticed where they f- have felt high level as though, you know, it- these players will 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 come on, but there's no dedicated way to get them them to not have kind of like their runway before they take off during the match. But instead, before it takes place, you know, you tell a guy, hey, you're coming on soon. I need you to get ready. They go do a lackadaisical jog to the corner flag. They give it a little kiss. They come back. They say they're ready. Or in the 89th minute, you need a striker to come on. You go, you look to your guy that needs to make a difference, and they're not remotely Set to to make the change, yeah. and so what what Wimbledon have done um, is institute this guy. I believe his name is Sammy Lander, um, who is yeah. His role is to basically when everybody else goes down the tunnel, he gets a warm up that's nice and tidy, fifteen minutes long, with his substitutes um, on the field, getting real touches, doing real dynamic activities that you can't do on a touchline. And it seems to have some anecdotes, at least, that show that this is an effective strategy. I am not watching Wimbledon by any means, so don't consider me to be a voice for that type of thing. But generally speaking, I guess this is something that a lot of people are talking about right now, a counterpoint to this. There's so much of this social dynamic that happens with Who is a starter, who isn't, not only within the club and within the player group, but also just generally in the media. The fans will get upset if a certain player is starting. Everybody waits until an hour before kickoff to see who they can rant about online. Does this type of thing, which I think is both innovative and, you know, generally it's an interesting concept that you could have a subs coach? Do you feel like this notion might further divide? the starters and the subs from a social standpoint in that you have some groups go down to the locker room. Others are staying out. Is it a way that you frame it? Um, I'm almost trying to provide the devil's advocate kind of counter to this idea where one of the, we talked about in the first half, how, you know, it tends to be the situation where a lot of people wait until the coach shines light on a couple of key points while everybody is all together in the locker room, when you only have the starters in there, does that change the dynamic? Is it feel less cohesive? Is there an argument against this new kind of rising
0: notion? Um, there's a there's a lot to impact there. I'll start with what and what it ended with in terms of like a team talk. Um, not necessarily. I don't think it, it it doesn't seem as divisive as you might imagine because um, at the end of the day, you're still wearing the same kit. So, like, all the, the points apply for the game because you're one of the teams in the game and the, and the, and the substitutes have every right to know what the coach is addressing with the main players as, mm. or with the, with the starting players as anyone, particularly because they are in a position to implement what is being asked of them or being asked of the team. So it's not it's not as awkward as I think you might envision, but the going to the substitutes coach, I do think there's a lot that a typical game setup restricts um, a substitute from preparing properly, and so hmm. a few like examples. Uh, a few examples would just be like imagine that, like you're at Old Trafford and there's a set, like little strip of sideline between the touchline and the bench.
1: You yeah, what do you do, do with that?
0: Yeah, you can't do any like change of direction work if you want to work on passing or anything with a ball, like almost no margin of error is possible, if any at all. And and the ref will probably tell you you can't you can't play with the ball because it's gonna be too close to the pitch and you might be hmm. in the way of a of a linesman or whatever. Like it's almost it's really difficult. And in particular, it seems so difficult for goalkeepers because there's not a goal where they can actually practice. So they have to go in like in substitute for someone that's going in for a penalty kick. Like I don't vividly remember seeing like, yeah, like kick some balls in my hand, like in front of the goal or like deal with some crosses. Like they might get like three or like, they might get a handful of things in the hand and then they have the media to go in. That's, that's enormously challenging. Um, so change like for, the substitutions coach i think makes a ton of sense to be able to try and get the best thing possible for them because the physical physical preparation coach like yeah or physical like a performance coach like yeah like they can help but um like maybe the substitutions coach is a little bit more Comp, like competent to deal with like tactical situations and the yeah and the physical coach because the physical coach's expertise is just radically different. It's not better or worse. It's just different.
1: It's it's probably another complication that can go on top of this idea of the timing of subs too. Because you might imagine a world in which. Let's say everybody does the warm up together. The players that are starting are definitely going to have an intense warm up, so long as the performance environment expects that of them. And the subs might feel less obliged to do so, but they're still—that's still their most active kind of moment before a match begins. And every minute that you don't bring a sub on is a minute that they spend, you know. I'm not a, I don't, a physiologist, but like you know, building up lactic acid in their legs, sitting in the stands, and and just waiting to to get colder and colder and colder progressively. And so if you have a player that's coming on in the 80th minute, maybe that's the right timing, assuming that they're ready. But if they aren't ready, you've allowed them 80 minutes to cool down. You've perhaps, well, let's say 70 minutes to cool down, 10 minutes to do a loose warm up. There is this also larger propensity for maybe injuries or other things that could also be non-ideal. So I think all things considered for the record, I think a subs coach is a brilliant idea. If you have the resources to make it happen, I think that it's, I'd be very intrigued to hear kind of what goes into their warm-up, how they can make those 15 minutes, uh, most effective. But I, I think it's cool that, that there are clubs that are exploring those inefficiencies a little bit more. And, and I bring up the devil's advocate argument solely for the purpose of challenging. Um, but, but I certainly think that it's, it's valuable. So a, a separate question that I had for you, Austin, mm-hmm. um, how do you measure the impact of a sub and is defined in the same way as a regular player
0: uh maintenance of maintenance or improvement of uh match intensity and what do you mean by that like basically if the team was not creating chances and they were once you entered the game pretty quantifiable way Okay. Um basically if there's some like change in like the field tilt or maintenance of a very good field tilt, field tilt meaning for those that are unfamiliar like where the ball is. Mhm. Um that to me is an improvement. Uh like a positive impact. And th- there's there's metrics that can definitely show this like your goal impact, like goal difference per minute plus minus like those are all pretty cut and dry ways to just see like, yeah, like do you make a positive impact on the game? Like do you do or the expected goals when a player enters a game higher? Like this is where kind of statistics and like the eye test can kind of to um, kind of meet and hmm. um it doesn't have to like oppose each other.
1: Would you, would you argue that there's a bit of like a runway in a sense for a player when they get into the field, they're not going to be able to make their maximum impact. Second one, there's a kind of breaking in period for any player in terms of when they're able to actually become truly involved.
0: Uh, yes. Yeah. It takes a little bit of time to adjust to the flow of the game. Cause no matter how, how f- Like it, it, it blows my mind. Like sometimes I'll watch a game. Um, or from like the sideline, you know, the pace of play is pretty slow. And if I was in that game, I would probably not perform well at all. Right. the the the, the pace of the game is frighteningly fast, by and large, and it's just faster and faster the higher the level gets. Mm-hmm. Um. So, like, those are a lot of things to consider, and the, um. So yeah, like that those are those are things that um have to be like really, really thought about when you kind of assess like how a player impacts a game when he comes in. Cause sometimes like you just want to keep the status quo and if they're able to do that, then great. Hmm. So
1: I, I think I think in the turn in the lens of stats, one of the things that I've thought about with regards to that runway, right? Let's say hypothetically if we assume that it takes a player 10 minutes to get involved, which might be too much, but let's just say for the sake of this exercise, 10 minutes is what it takes for you to get to the point where you're maximally performing in terms of your output on the field, Mm -hmm. hypothetically. So let's say a sub plays 400 minutes over, let's say, 20 games, right? So they're playing the last 20 minutes of 20 games. And the starter, the typical starter is played 2,000 minutes or whatever, right? And let's say when you're looking at stats and you're comparing these two players, like the starting striker versus the sub striker, Um, if you consider like that runway, that runway is way disproportional in terms of how it affects, how it occupies the amount of time the sub has to be on the field compared to the starter, right? Because for a sub, if you're only getting 20 minutes and it takes you 10 minutes to get up and running into fifth gear or what have you, and if it takes the same 10 minutes for a player that's going 90, right? The difference is now that half of your minutes as a, as a sub are throwaway effectively Mm -hmm. versus say 10% of a starter. And at the end of the day, when you look at, you know, FB ref or whatever source you have all those minutes and the, they, they try to normalize stats as a function of minutes, but those minutes don't mean the same thing in a way. And there is a world in which the substitute is being unfairly evaluated because if everybody has that period that it takes them to break into the match, they are more disproportionately represented by those minutes.
0: Yeah, I also feel like that's a pretty easy correction, Then, Then you can just remove your runaway min- minutes. Yeah, whatever you assume. Yeah, yeah I agree with yeah. that. Um, so, at the same time, though, like, unfair or not, like, the first 10 minutes of a game, like, a goal counts the same as sure. it is an 80 to 90. So, yeah. if the... If every player needs ten minutes to get up and settling, like how quickly can you adapt to the game matters right. regardless of the f- regardless of whether you start or whether you're a substitute. Because I was gonna say it does it- take some players like longer to get adjusted to the game. Like you might have to yell at them, like, "Hey, when you when your duels, dude," or uh, some people might just hit the ground running. So yeah, it's it is player by player in the sense and even game by game, but the every player will face some sort of adjustment. And I think it's really hard to adjust for that in your statistical model. And if you do, then you, I think you would just have to adjust it for everyone equally because there's so much variation that could take place.
1: Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. and, all things considered, it could end up being a moot point argument in the same sense that you're saying, where it's almost just like, well, as a sub, your job not only is to play well, but it's to hit the ground running and to make your impact faster than the starters. So I think that makes that that works for me. Um, I, I do want to touch before we before we go. Um, there's a couple of things, generally speaking, about five subs. This is the reason that we had chatted initially about having this episode in the first place, and mm. I have obviously enjoyed talking about substitutions as a concept, but this is really the the, the meat the the Thing that everybody is talking about right now. So, uh, tell me a little bit about the motivations behind five subs and why this might be a thing that is introduced uh, permanently into our game. Why it's, uh, you know, why it's remotely in the conversation to begin with.
0: Yeah. Um, again, I'm not a, I'm not a referee, so I'm not going to entirely like do it justice, but I'm going to give kind of my impression and understanding of it. Um, sure. Um, with the return to play that came following the pause in many major leagues because of the coronavirus pandemic, um, the fixture load was significantly higher. And in order to compromise players playing in essentially unsafe playing conditions, both in terms of the load and the possibility of being exposed to a virus, um, leagues were essentially giving, FIFA was giving leagues the option to resume competition with five substitutions that could be made in a 90-minute match made during three moments to maintain the same rhythm and flow of a traditional 90-minute game prior to March of 2020. Um, Five subs will likely be maintained as the playing demands of uh, major leagues and cups increase particularly with the expansion of the champions league with more games and an expanded group stage, mm-hmm. uh, more cup competitions and in general, just more condensed international schedules um, with the reorganization of the world cup and kind of playing catch up on lost time due to the coronavirus pandemic in some sense. So
1: yeah, it's an excellent
0: summary. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it, it, it's a, it's. It appears that it is going to stick for those reasons. Um, initially starting out with player safety kind of turned into a cynical way to play players more um, so that uh, the executives that run the game can get more of the product out to the people.
2: Hmm.
1: Okay, so given that backdrop, um, you mentioned kind of briefly expected changes. Uh, let's start generally speaking with the dynamics. We talked about the chess match that occurs when you make a sub and then the other team makes a, makes a sub. Obviously there's a little bit of enforced, uh, there's an added restriction of being able to only do it in three occasions, but with five subs, you are being able to change half of your team. How does the strategy, how do the dynamics shift when suddenly you have that new ability to change even more than you were before?
0: So, an important consideration too, is now, with five substitutions, the bench expands. so the bench is no longer seven players. The bench in MLS it is nine players. Um, so that gives more players more opportunities and different types of players more opportunities. Um, okay. One of the things is maybe it gives more youth more opportunity so they can come in at later stages if the game is decided and and dip their feet in the water. Um, It gives the opportunity for more specialized roles. So rather than, like in the past, like when there were five substitutes on a bench, you have these like all-purpose kind of players that could, someone that could go anywhere across the back line, maybe a striker that could also play on the wing. Now that's getting more and more specialized where it's like, all right, this is our fullback substitute. On the right and this is our one on the left as opposed to like this is a fullback that can play on both sides and do both competently as opposed to one that can do one really well and maybe you'll want a different profile of a, of a left fullback um if you want to make make a change there maybe you want someone more attacking or provides a different maybe they're a really good set piece threat but a liability defensively um and so those it just adds for more specialization in terms of what you can do on your bench. Um, and that is for sure one of the expansions with five substitutes. In addition... Does that... The, yeah, go on. Well, briefly, does that trickle down in a
1: negative way, making players more compelled to have very specialized skill sets and less be less well-rounded in a way that might pigeonhole their careers towards a certain set of skills and abilities that might not end up panning out? Because one of the advantages right, of being a jack-of-all-trades is that you know perhaps whatever team you end up being on next needs something, and if you have been so focused on one aspect of your game, you need that to be the demand at all times in order to be the supply. Is there a world in which players get left behind because you're losing the, you know, James Milner's the Sergio Roberto's of the world in this new modern footballing culture where with five subs, now you need a very specific tool to fit the very specific
0: need. Yes. And no, um, a lot of recruitment is moving towards profile is being moved towards profile based. So if that's the profile you're looking for, you'll be able to find it. Hmm. Hmm. So like I, I um, okay. That that that's a that's a recruitment department question that I don't feel apt to answer. But I think if you want an all-purpose player, you will be able to find it. It's just how you find it is different than you might be in the past, and you might have to develop players into those roles if that's what you really want. Sure. Sure. Um, okay.
1: How, how do you, how do you view the discrepancy between the impact of this on larger versus smaller clubs? Because that's one of the things that everybody is asking. Um, is this something that's going to yield an unfair advantage to the teams that are able to hoard more talent? How do you view that?
0: Yeah, I think it's a pretty good point. And I think it's, it does hold some water because like um, you might to bring in the Bayern Munich example from earlier, like they'll bring in players that might be worth the entire squad of their opponent in mm-hmm. terms of their, in terms of transfer fee or, or wages per year or however you want to look at it that's really difficult to play against for sure um and i'll add that like that is difficult to um difficult to prepare against and like I mentioned earlier, like the psychological like impact of like looking on, looking at who's he buying something. Oh, they're subbing in Musiala, like one of the best youngsters in the world. Like this team is endlessly stacked. Um, it makes, it makes the training environment within Bayern Munich that much better. that they can maintain to do that and will increase like a gap between like the number one team and the number 10 and an 11 team because they can afford to, Play more players and keep more mm. than happy in some sense. Um, and it, it makes it so that, uh, like, smaller, it's not going to be like a, like, there's more indirect effects that I think people realize need direct effects in the game because they're still playing a reduced amount of time, um, granted under heightened circumstances. But it's more so the adjustments of like performance bonuses and appearance bonuses that really have to get recalibrated. Where big clubs will be able to afford to pay that more while smaller clubs will not. And that's the that's the harder thing, I think.
1: So one of the count one of the counterpoints to this notion, I think a lot of people have been worried about the fact that, you know, you already have Donny Beek and Alex Tellis and all these other guys that are just running away on Men United's bench that Ollie can't seem to fit into the squad. And we talked about this like two episodes ago. Um, but the notion that you could have five substitutions might make people more concerned that they would be able to stockpile even more. Now the, the counterpoint that I would argue, which is a little wishy washier and less cogent, all things considered is the fact that I think that for smaller clubs, let's say, if you look at the 20th place team versus one of the top teams in the, in the premier league, right? If you compare Liverpool subbing out Salah, who if you, you mentioned kind of like a general rating system, let's say Salah is a 10 out of 10 player. Don't take too much stock in these numbers, obviously. That's fine. Let's say Salah is a 10 out of 10 player. You sub him out for Minamino, who let's say is a, I don't know, a 7 out of 10 player. Might be lower than that, but let's say it's a 7 out of 10 player. When you compare that drop from a 10 to a 7 versus Norwich subbing out Pookie for Sargent, which might be a 7 out of 10 player coming off for a 6 out of 10 player the scaled difference is changed in terms of how it impacts a top team versus a smaller team. And so that's probably like the sliver of a rationale behind how I would feel as though there isn't as, I wouldn't say that like smaller clubs necessarily have the advantage, but I would say that they have less of a standard deviation possibly with regards to how their players compared to those that are coming on, right? If you're if you're taking Messi off and you're putting on Sarabia, that's a massive gap versus your two very probably similarly average players at the bottom of League One. And so that's possibly a way to view that, but I understand how it's a little flimsier of an argument.
0: Yeah, but at the end of the day, like those players are still a standard deviation above Pookie and Sargent, By and large. So like when you're dealing with outliers, it's so difficult to say like, oh, like <laughs> this player that's not as good as him, like, uh, but still better than everyone else. Like it- it's going to impact the big teams disproportionately um, in general, though, like big clubs are not taking off those players because there's right. equal management. So what players, clear. What, what players are they taking off? They're taking off those seven at eight to seven out of 10 guys and subbing in other seven out of 10 guys. They're not like, it's more similar than different. Um, I I think
1: that's the precise way to negate that argument is the notion that like, yeah, Salah is not coming off the field.
0: So what, what I'll give the, well, I guess I don't want to say finish with, but I think it gives a good opportunity for these clubs to do. Um, it gives a good opportunity for these clubs to like, start to push their own and start to fund more um, equitable squads, meaning okay, if the club is a somewhat decent academy or somewhat logical investment player recruitment strategy that goes into squad reinvestment, um, you can play more players to sell that can fund a more balanced squad distribution, or push higher-end players in as well. It depends on what you Mm. want to do. So I think that, like, like a club like... uh, uh, Let me think of a good one. Like, Borussia Dortmund is probably a really good example of this, where they basically use a sale to backlog, like, their whole next, like, three years of recruitment, and now the depth they have there is really, really impressive, to the point where Giorena gets hurt, and they... Can kind of he can kind of go on, not without him. They as Reina has qualities that are really hard to replace, but there's other players that can do those things really well too. Now mm-hmm. Erling Holland going getting injured impacts that team a lot lot more because he is such an outlier, and that impact of him coming out of the game from the beginning, even if he was substituted off, for likely would only be for injury would still be the same thing and Hmm. or similar because he's such a keystone (laughs) to how they play that uh these keystone players that you're not taking them off more or less regardless so why are they considered in the substitution strategies that clubs bring up
1: With, with regards to the youth thing that you mentioned um Do you feel like that's an organic kind of self-reinforcing prophecy where if you give more chances to play more players, there's more incentive to bring those young players on? Or do you think that there is a need to somehow stipulate that, you know, there have been conversations about potential sort of alternatives to this added substitution rule where let's say hypothetically you have five subs, but one must be an academy player or one must be U18. Do you feel like those rules would enforce it or it's disingenuous?
0: Uh, kind of disingenuous because I think teams would abuse it, and it would also uh, give wrong impressions to players that end up in those places. Um, hmm. Like if a team doesn't want to follow him, they shouldn't have to follow him, but they just must, must right. be, They must be willing to bear the consequences of not following him. Yeah, when it comes to their financial future, and if a team is willing to be a li- little bit more brave about playing young players, or. Um, pursuing like the development of their players to partake in the global transfer market, then that's every right to do. They have every right to do that because there's going to be some compromise of results versus development in that sense too. That's really difficult to manage. So both teams are taking a risk in some sense, the risk, the time horizon and the financial risks are different because if a team doesn't play any young players and they still get relegated, uh, they have no product to potentially like, actually come through and now that our wages are inflated now if it team does play young players and they do get relegated um, then uh, like they lose the financial financial meat of it and the, the, the competition format for those players to develop in so there's, hmm. a, there's a lot that comes there's a lot of risk that comes with it and I don't think you should strictly enforce like one of these players must be this one of these players must be that um, because it protects players that haven't earned it in some sense.
1: I think the quota makes it inherently problematic because nobody likes to be considered to be the person that made it somewhere because there was a outlying need for something beyond quality or talent. But with that listen, man, this has been fantastic. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, it's getting late for for the both of us, but I just wanted to say thank you for coming on. Thanks for joining us. Um, it is just me tonight, but I, I hope I know that everybody is going to be really excited to hear um, our, our, our back and forth and mostly your insights, all things considered. So uh, it's been a pleasure. I will see you in Boston soon. For those of you that don't know, Austin's originally a, a Boston guy and I am a transplant in Boston, at least for a little while. So I'm excited for that. Um, but, you know, until then, hope you take care. Hope you enjoy the the time off from, you know, the, the heat of the season. You're finished, at least for the most part right now, correct? Or do you still have any games?
0: We're winding down. We have some training stuff we're doing and some physical testing, but we're... Um kind of winding down 2021 and then we'll ramp up the preparations for 2022 very very soon and it will be an exciting season to come
1: cool well with that again thanks man this has been a pleasure um till next time (laughs)